Hello there, and welcome to episode one of this third series of What You May Have Mythed. It's been a while since we last spoke, and much has gone on in the What You May Have Mythed department. Not least of all, I have finally figured out how to use the TikTok, so if you head over there, you will find videos that are posted daily revolving around characters, creatures, places, and questions that you, the followers, ask. And in a few weeks' time, I am launching something very exciting that will expand what you may have missed to more than just the podcast show, so keep your eyes peeled for that. But that's enough jibber-jabber from me, so let's crack on with this first episode, and we are starting off with a double whammy from a new country. We have visited the European continent several times already over the last two series, but we are heading for the first time to Spain, where, coincidentally, I am currently chilling on my holidays. So let's get stuck into this series, shall we? And into a couple of stories from Spain. The Topsy-Turvy World One day, for some bizarre reason, some higher power decreed that everything should turn upside down. Quite literally. Fishes flew into the air like swarms of glittering butterfly. The nightingales and other songbirds ceased their singing, and in their place sharks and whales began. A donkey in an inn pootled around his stall playing a clarinet, whilst another walked out of the barn picking his teeth with a Toledo blade. Around this time there lived a boy called Manolo, who I'm sorry to say took pleasure in beating animals. His parents and schoolmaster had tried beating the desire out of him, yet nothing would do it. Whenever he saw a donkey tied to a fence, he would untie it and walk it away, thrashing it with a stick to make it trot. When he saw a dog, he would attempt to smack it, and would only be happy when it fled with its tail between its legs. And to the tails of cats, he would tie sardines. In short, he was an awful child. But he woke one morning, the first morning that the world had been turned upside down, to find one of his dogs standing on his hind legs at the head of his bed. The dog stared at him for a second, then punched him hard, saying, Little friend, get up! You have to clean my boots! Manolo just stared at the dog, so it punched him twice more, and so he jumped out of bed. But the moment he tried to stand on two feet, he sprawled on the floor. He could only walk on all fours. He tried to speak to this peculiar dog that looked very human, yet the only sound that came from his mouth was a bark. Short of trying anything else, Manolo tried to bite the dog, but the dog stepped back and rained down blow after blow on him. Manolo fled from the house and into the lane where he discovered, to his horror, that other boys as awfully as behaved as him had been punished in the same way. Two of his friends, 
Carlos and Pepe were pulling a carriage behind them, and instead of human drivers, two goats were sat proudly in their place. There were several donkeys that usually carried heavy loads of water, yet their place had been taken by some other boys who were huffing and puffing under the weight of the water skins. The donkeys themselves were behind them, yelling things like, Gee up, donkey! You're more stupid than a post! Manolo ventured on his way down the lane and came across another of his friends. Bernardo! he barked. Have you seen what's happened? Of course I have! Can you not see that I'm now a poodle? Bernardo barked back. Help me! I'm trying to get away from the old dog so they can't take advantage on me for the tricks I used to play on them. But before Bernardo could offer any help, a noise was heard and down the lane came trundling a tram car being pulled by two former drovers, and in the driver's seat was the old mule, sat coquettishly adorned with a crooked hat. Manolo opened his mouth to say something to Bernardo, but as he was about to speak, Manolo was seized by the shirt and tied very tightly to a great petrol can. He turned to see the dogs he used to hurt, gathering and celebrating with laughter the happy event of making Manolo run with a can tied to him. The dogs only needed to lay on a couple of kicks for Manolo to start running as fast as he could. Manolo ran close past a large tank where he saw fish with rods under their fins angling for boys who were swimming around. He ran for such a long time that when he stopped he was half dead with fatigue but was, at once, taken up by an old blind horse who in exchange for some crusts forced him to learn some exercises with which to amuse the appreciative audience of bears, monkeys, dogs, cats and other distinguished animals. The horse sat on the ground with a silk hat and played on a little drum, making Manolo dance. So much dancing later, and Manolo was exhausted. He managed to give the horse the slip, but naturally, as was the way with escaped slaves, his disappearance was announced in the local gazette, offering a reward to anyone who found him. But no one could hide himself as well as Manolo. One afternoon, though, he saw many people... Well, when I say people, I mean cats, dogs, mules, pigs, and the like, gathering together in one of the larger buildings. Oh, goodness, said Manolo to himself. This is the bull ring. Okay, as a dog, I can go in and see the fight for free. And slipping between two animals who were acting as porters, he took a seat in the ring. A donkey was acting as master of ceremonies, and beside him was a human, as asinine as Manolo, who informed the MC donkey when it was necessary to move on with the programme. Into the stands came a number of peacocks, adorned with opera glasses, openly criticising and ridiculing one another. Round the ring were crowds of bears who carried leather pouches of wine, which they sipped delicately. There was much confusion around the place, until an orchestra of ostriches started playing, and a troop of toradors appeared. Twelve bulls from incredible stock came into the ring also, walking on two feet with the red cloth waving between their horns. Those bulls who were the spearmen rode on the boys who cleared up the ring whilst carrying long spears. The trumpet sounded and the first animal came into the ring. It was a German who attacked the spearmen bulls and overthrew the boys carrying them. Now the donkey MC made the sign that it was time to move on, 
However, as he gave the signal, a horrible shouting came from one of the ringside stands. The German had jumped over the barrier and a violent fight had commenced. Two English girls who had been making the noises of monkeys fainted, and the crowd, as one, rushed the doors of the bullring. Manolo felt two kicks behind him and without even turning to see who had delivered the blows, he fled into the street like a mad animal. Then things became outstandingly weird. A gaggle of geese wearing Roman helmets and riding upon sardine tins were pretending to maintain the order with their swords, yet in reality they were playing tricks on the legitimate authorities. They soon knocked over Manolo, who then scrambled to seclude himself in a doorway, but before he could get into the hideaway, a camel stopped him and picked him up. Oh, thank goodness I have a little dog, she said. The camel was wearing a woman's veil and held Manolo as if he were a baby. She took up in a corner of the street and began to sing in a high voice. I was born in a wood of coconut trees, one morning in the month of April. Then, alms for a poor mother and her babe. The child's father has abandoned us and I cannot pay the child support. But Manolo did not particularly want to play the part of an infant in this camel's arms, so he gave the camel a swift, hard bite and fled through the crowd to the outskirts of town. In a quiet cottage here, he found two doves who seeing how tired and thin he was, gave him food and a pillow to rest his weary head. As he laid down to rest, they began a lullaby that fell him into a deep sleep. In his dream, he was visited by a vision of someone dressed in white and gold. They said to him in a melodious voice, Manolo, your sufferings have ended. Let what you have seen be a warning to you, and try to be good to everybody including animals. When Manolo opened his eyes, he was in his own bed, in his own house. He looked around just as the servant came in to tell him it was time for his lessons. Manolo was still in astonishment at what he had just witnessed and dressed himself quickly and at the same time realising he could stand on two legs once more. From that day on, he never mistreated anyone, human or animal, saying, Besides it being cowardly to ill-treat defenceless beings, is it not dangerous to expose oneself to the risk of the tables being turned and finding oneself in the same disagreeable position? The Treasure of the Dragon Once an old sailor brought news to a small town that he had seen, on a far-off island, a dreadful dragon guarding an immense hoard of treasure. It had the form of half fish, half lion, with such powerful wings that it could climb to unbelievable heights. It could survive anywhere, air, water, land, and any ships that ventured too close to it were set ablaze and left as nothing but burnt splinters on the waves. The news of this dragon launched many an expedition to fell the beast and claim the riches but all the expeditions were torched and devoured. Yet this in turn brought more adventurers, and some from all over the world who had heard of the glory of wealth there was to be taken. Amongst the precious stones and gold bars of the hoard, there was a statue of lifelike proportions 
carved of a single diamond that was deemed so valuable that all the world's treasure combined could not purchase it. The failed expeditions and lost sons of the town where the dragon had first been spoken of had done nothing to dampen the spirits of the people. In fact, quite the opposite. It had ignited a flame of bravery and daring, and in less than a month a voyage of the bravest and most ambitious souls in the town would set sail. Their ship was named Temeraire, and she was one of the swiftest ships to ever sail the seas. It took them only fourteen days to reach sight of the island where dwelt the dragon and their prize, and when they were within one league of the island, the members of the expedition held a council and hatched a plan. They would launch three or four boats so as to land on the island in different places at the same time. With them, they would carry much ammunition in order to be able to fire on the dragon from an assortment of angles, and after they had felled the beast, they would share the spoils equally between all parties. A simple plan, yet one they hoped would be effective. All the men agreed to it, save one. A cabin boy named Pasquale. This plan is folly, he said. Rather than divide our force, we should stay here, where we can all focus a single force against the dragon with our cannon. If we split up, we will be smaller in number and easily overcome by the beast. But the others did not listen. If you're so afraid, then stay behind. All it means is more treasure for us. So he did. All the others set sail on their boats, yet none of them trusted their companions. They were all fearful that if they themselves did not witness the division of the treasure once the dragon was dead, then they would be cheated out of some of the booty. Only Pasquale, the cabin boy, and an elderly yet experienced pilot who had uttered no opinion during the council were left on the ship, watching their fellow adventurers set off for the island. As the boats were rowed towards land, Pasquale set to work loading the bow gun and readying himself with a long spear. Then he settled himself on the deck with a telescope and watched the progress of his companions. They very nearly made it to shore, but before they could land, a terrible roar rent the air. The men ceased their rowing and raised their rifles ready to gun down the oncoming dragon. As it crashed through the air, gunshot sounded, but they did nothing but ping pathetically off the dragon's impenetrable scales. The dragon sank through the sky and drove itself straight into the boats, one at a time, rising and falling and rising again, until nothing remained but Crimson Sea. After its extermination, the dragon lifted into the sky and shook itself of the sailor's blood, much like a dog drying itself after jumping in the river. The pilot was petrified and became desperate to return home, but Pasquale grew in bravery. No, we must not give in and we will not let our countrymen die for nothing. Take us at full speed to the island and we will avenge our comrades by taking down the dread beast. Inspired by the cabin boy's fearlessness, the pilot set the ship in the direction of the shore. Like their companions, they nearly made it to land, but from low on the horizon the dragon advanced towards them, death in its stare. Pasquale aimed his cannon and fired, but the shot did nothing but bounce pitifully off some rocks and disappeared. The dragon gave a mighty bellow and rose into the air, circling the ship like an enormous eagle that has spotted a particularly fat and juicy mouse. 
and then it dived. Pasquale readied his spear, but the violence of the dragon's attack and the strength of the boy's thrust nearly shattered it, and yet his strike landed not where he had planned, in the dragon's chest, but through one of its claws. The dragon writhed in agony and rose up into the air once more, seething at the boy who had harmed it. Pasquale clung to the spear and was carried into the air with the beast, and the dragon, noticing this, plunged into the dark waters in an attempt to drown the boy. But Pasquale could swim like a fish and clung to the spear protruding from the claw so the dragon could not get rid of him. In desperation and fuelled by its pain, the dragon pulled itself to the shore, dragging Pasquale with it. The instant Pasquale's feet touched the ground, he levered the spear in the dragon's claw and twisted in such a way that the pain deprived the monster of its strength and consciousness. As the dragon lay panting and moping, Pasquale unsheathed his jackknife and tried to spot a weakness between the dragon's armour-like scales. He found a join between two loosened scales, and into it he plunged his knife many times. In a final blow, he used a stone from the beach as a hammer and drove the knife deep into the dragon's flesh. The dragon gave a great sigh as the knife sank deeper, and then breathed no more. Pasquale stood and began searching the beach for any of his comrades, but there was nothing left of them but red waves lapping against the shore. He faced out to sea and could just spot the top of the ship disappearing over the horizon. Clearly the old pilot had fled the moment Pasquale had been thrown into the water with the dragon. Now Pasquale's mind turned to the treasure and he set to in search of it. But it was in vain. All over the island he hunted, but no sign of it could he find. He returned, therefore, to where he had slain the dragon, but then noticed a vast stone that would, no doubt, cover the entrance to the secret grotto that held the treasure. Sure enough, as is the way in these tales, his assumption was correct. He pulled his spear free from the dragon's claw and used it as a lever to prise the rock from the entrance. A winding staircase was revealed, and feeling that nothing more perilous could befall him than a dragon, Pasquale ventured down. The first room he came to had walls covered with rubies, the second with emeralds, and the third with pearls and diamonds. In the centre of the third room stood a magnificent statue carved of a single diamond in the shape of a beautiful princess. Pasquale was stunned at her extraordinary beauty. He could not stop staring at her. His eyes moved down over her, and he noticed on the pedestal her perfect feet stood was an inscription that read, In a stone lies the disenchantment. Pasquale looked around him at the pearls and diamonds embedded in the walls. He walked up to one wall and pressed his hand against one of the precious stones. In an instant the stone transformed into a person, he pressed another, and another, and every one he touched became a human. The princess herself finally became flesh and blood, and came slowly down from her pedestal, and held out her hand to Pasquale. For your bravery, I gift you all the riches of my kingdom and my heart, she said. Pasquale looked around him, 
Amongst those he had restored to life were all his companions of the expedition, who, instead of scolding him for not venturing forth with them, embraced him, and recognising that what he had achieved was incredible, they did not envy this mightiest of rewards the princess granted him. Back on the shore, all the ruined boats had reappeared, and they all set sail back towards home, carrying the new Prince Pasquale with them. He became a generous prince, and was utterly devoted to his subjects, or so I'm told. Well, there we go. Two tales from Spain to kick off this third series. What did you make of them? When I discovered these tales during my research, I knew that they were two stories that I wanted to tell, as they're not only entertaining, but also carry important morals with them. And that, I believe, is something that the world needs much more of. Anyway, next week we are returning to a place we have visited once before in the very first series. But for now, if you need any more mythology content in your life, go and check out the What You May Have Missed TikTok. Or if you feel so inclined, you can support me and the show at buymeacoffee.com slash themythspodcast. I leave you as I bask in the sun of southern Spain. Actually, I'm probably on the golf course. But I shall see you in a week's time for the next episode of What You May Have Missed. <laughs>